Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London, I'm Josh Noble. The market for facial recognition technology is expected to be worth $9 billion by 2022, thanks to rapid improvements in the speed and accuracy of the software. Recent strides in machine learning, using large data sets of images culled from the internet, have made this possible. But how ethical is it, and how will it affect our privacy? Neville Hawcock discusses these issues with Madamita Merger, our European technology correspondent. Madhu, you've written an article for the FT Weekend magazine about facial recognition technology, which has been evolving quite quickly, but largely under the radar. So can you explain first what facial recognition technology is and how it works? Sure. Facial recognition technology today works as a system which scans people, whether that's on a busy road or people at an event, depends who you're looking for. And the systems that run this can pick out people specifically that you may be looking for. So it depends what the application is. For example, police might be using it to scan video feeds at an event looking for a specific criminal or looking for somebody at the border or looking for terror suspect or illegal immigrants or any sorts of suspects that they're trying to spot. And the technology is able to match these people's faces with a photo that it's been trained on to find the right person. So it detects people automatically. There's no need for a human operator to sort of look through the images. Exactly. So it automatically identifies people, finds them, and then can tell you who they are. So who owns this technology at the moment? The technology is owned by a whole bunch of different people. It's not a single owner. So it's being developed, for example, both in the public and private sector. There are companies ranging from Microsoft to Facebook, IBM, and many others who've got in-house facial recognition systems and algorithm. Amazon is another one that they've trained up themselves and are being used for commercial reasons. And then there's also public algorithms. So, for example, the UK police is currently using facial recognition algorithms to solve crimes, for example. So when you say public algorithms, you mean they're being used by public bodies rather than that they're publicly available? Yes, both actually. So there are some which are published widely and are open so people can pick them up and then use them for their own applications. And then there are also algorithms used by public bodies, including law enforcement and homeland security and other police and government departments. So what would you say are the positive and negative ways that we can use this technology? We often talk about the negative connotations of facial recognition because obviously it's a surveillance technology. And often, you know, facial recognition is the umbrella term, but it's not just about recognising people, but about tracking people through a series of videos. For example, if we want to see where somebody has ended up or analysing their faces for things like figuring out their emotions or maybe even to lip read what they're saying if you can't hear. So this wider umbrella of terms is really about looking at the face and figuring out the behaviour or what somebody is saying or doing. And obviously there can be lots of negative uses, for example, surveillance uh, of people who governments might find interesting to them and also finding suspected criminals. But the problem is that facial recognition technology isn't very accurate yet. It's better than it ever has been, but it still makes several mistakes. And the danger is that people will be wrongly identified. And of course, if the fallout is that you might get arrested or detained, then there's a high bar to it being accurate. 
On the positive side, researchers talk about being able to diagnose diseases, for example, by looking at signals from people's faces. So things like diabetes or Parkinson's, you might see very, very early signs of this through people's facial expressions or other signals, and that could help early diagnoses and hence early treatment. So there are other uses of it, but obviously the biggest market for these technologies has been in security and surveillance. I suppose if police forces are using the technology, then let's say, for example, a relative went missing or something, then it might be a thing that you would welcome those agencies having. Exactly. And this is what law enforcement agencies have said, that they also use them, for example, to find missing children. And because the technology can model what somebody might look like after a few years, it means that you can have an updated version of somebody's face who's gone missing and that can be much more helpful in finding them, for example. So yes, there are useful applications for this technology as well, but there's also a big potential for misuse. I think there's some evidence of that misuse in Western China, isn't there, in Xinjiang, where I think it's been used to monitor the Uyghur population there? Yes, exactly. So in China, the state has been using these types of surveillance technologies for surveilling the general population. Law enforcement uses it to surveil crowds and to prevent things like riots. But also specifically, it has been used to identify and track minority populations in China, including the Muslim population, both in Western China, but also in other parts of the country. And there are both private companies in China, as well as universities that have been developing and supplying these technologies. So in a way, it's like a classic example of a dual use technology that's got benign or malign applications. Yes, this is true of any emerging technology. But just specifically in the case of facial recognition, it's very personal and invasive. You explain in your article how the image data sets that are vital to the development of the technology have been collected and widely shared. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So the investigation that I did for this piece was working with a researcher who'd collected about 300 different data sets. And basically what these data sets are, are big collections of faces. Faces of people, mostly from the West, which have been scraped or picked up from the internet. So it could be from Google Images or Bing. Uh, It could be from Flickr, where people have uploaded family photo albums. It could be from YouTube videos, where people have picked out stills from these videos. Or it can be even more invasive, where researchers have, for example, set up surveillance cameras on university campuses, in town squares, in markets, and then use those images to create these data sets. Not need to get consent for taking people's images like that. So surprisingly, not. In a lot of the cases with the internet images, these were uploaded with what's called a Creative Commons license. And the original intention for this license was to allow people to freely reuse or republish these photos without always having to ask for someone's permission or to pay copyright charges. But how it's ended up being used is that these faces have gone into building sets that then train facial recognition algorithms to spot and analyze faces better. So really all of these pictures of people that they've unwittingly put up or unwittingly walked through a campus, for example, have now ended up training algorithms in China that are used to study video surveillance, for example, or in Israel and in Russia or even in the US and the UK, where they're being used to study biometric profiles of people's faces. Have you spoken to the researchers who've uploaded these images? 
Yeah, I managed to contact a few that were willing to talk to me. One of the researchers I spoke to was from the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, UCCS, and he'd created a data set that he calls Unconstrained College Students. The clues in the name... Basically, he set up a surveillance camera and he said that he filmed students walking around campus who were unaware that they were being filmed. And the whole goal of this exercise was to create a really realistic data set of people's faces where they weren't... Not like a standard portrait shot or anything like that. Exactly. Maybe not even like a selfie or a party picture. No, this is just natural footage of people walking around, their faces covered up, looking down at their phones, side profiles, partially hidden, which is how things would be in the real world when you're trying to surveil people walking around. And by creating this data set, he was then able to, or rather he did share it with the federal government and many others, including researchers and companies who then used this data set to inform their own research. I understand that some of these data sets have been used by the University of Defence Technology in China to yes. create surveillance technology. Yeah, so NUDT is the National University of Defence Technology in China and it's run by the Chinese military. So it has very well established links with the PLA or the Chinese military. And a lot of the work that they do in the area of AI or drones is used to inform and design and develop technologies for the military. And yes, I found a few papers which were written by NUDT researchers that had used the data sets that we found and bear in mind these data sets were created in the US or the UK or elsewhere. Extraordinary at a time when the US is anxious about the Chinese getting hold of US technology. Exactly and I found that this was actually a huge blind spot. So while there are discussions all over the world of whether there should be sanctions or export controls applied to sensitive technologies, especially AI, for example, with China, actually academic partnerships seem to be completely invisible in this entire discussion and they fly under the radar. So there are so many of these individual collaborations that I found with students from these universities in China or researchers who've been working with US, UK and Australian companies and universities and publishing work together and there doesn't seem to be any framework or sort of training to question what's happening with these technologies, where they're being applied, who ultimately gets access to them. It's just seen as sort of a free exchange of ideas. You'd have no sense that then the researchers have ethical scruples about taking people's faces off the internet and then applying them in these ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that the researchers who had created the data sets believed that they were doing a public good because they were advancing a technology that could be used in a variety of different ways. But they don't seem to have considered the effect of having a borderless internet, which means that faces can be essentially exported across the whole world and get into the hands of people who might not have the same ethical boundaries or ideas that they have. And so, you know, the ultimate use case could be really different from what they had imagined and our faces could be training surveillance technologies that we a have no idea about and b might have a huge ethical objection to. Do you foresee uh, negative uses of this technology in the west as well? Yeah, so the technology is also being used by law enforcement and governments in the US and the UK for example. Here in the UK, privacy activists have been protesting the 
police's use of facial recognition technology. And the main objection here is that it's not good enough considering it's being used by the police to catch criminals because it means that often mistakes are being made. And in particular, the error rate for facial recognition of minorities is higher than it is for Caucasians. And this is partly because of the training data. So if these systems are trained on lots and lots of Caucasian faces, it means they are better at recognizing Caucasian faces. And because they haven't had as much training data of other races and you know minority faces, it means that they are less accurate in identifying them. So there ends up being a bias of misidentification when it comes to the police using this to catch criminals. The researchers pursuing this technology could argue that by creating new, more realistic data sets, they're going to overcome those sort of biases. Exactly. And that's the big debate here. Should we create more data sets and more diverse data sets so that we improve facial recognition? Or should we just stop digging into people's privacy by filming and photographing them as they go about their daily lives and maybe put limitations and stops on the use of the technology at all? And these are the two sides of the coins. And there are privacy activists today who feel that we shouldn't really be using facial recognition at all because there are other ways to achieve the same things without being so invasive into people's lives and scraping images without our knowledge. Well, as some technologists would argue that the solution to the shortcomings of data is get yet more data. Exactly. And this is the rabbit hole that it seems this entire research community has gone down because they're looking for more data and more unconstrained data and more natural data. And natural in this sense just means without consent because by definition it means people shouldn't know that they're being filmed so um you know we just seem to be going further and further down this hole is there any way to ensure that our images are used only for purposes that are beneficial do you think I think like with any technology you can't turn the clock back so these faces already exist facial recognition is useful it is cheaper than having loads and loads of human police officers for example and it's quicker as well you can comb through hours of footage rather than getting a single person to sit down and watch it and spot people so it's coming it's going to be used so the question is can we put into place proper ethical training and also legal and public policy limitations on the technology or breaks that would force academics and corporations and governments everybody who uses and develops this technology to really question how it could be used and to try and prevent that from happening so for my story when I contacted a lot of these researchers the question I asked was do you think about how your technology could ultimately be used and if yes what do you put into place to ensure it doesn't get into the wrong hands and often I found that they haven't even thought about that so that really should be a first step where you maybe have ethics training for anybody working on sensitive AI topics like facial recognition to really educate them about how it is being used and how it could be used. Possibly to get pressure from policymakers as well in this area. Well, exactly, because at the moment it seems that it's so new and emerging that the law is still far behind and hasn't caught up. And so the only way for there to be any real restriction is for the public as well as lawmakers and companies themselves to come together to create a framework for how this is used. Madhu, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Neville Hawcock talking to Madhu Meter Merger, and you can find a link to her FT Magazine article in our show notes. Thanks for listening. 
Remember, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.